But I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 51 again. That's where I was a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 51, we're talking about the king's fall and his great loss. Psalms 51 is something in the Bible that has many different directions you can go with. You can deal with a lot of different things in Psalms 51. And that can become a little difficult because you, you're trying to preach on one thing and then you suddenly think of something else in that psalm and you get a little mixed up. I know I do at times. But I want to try to stay with this point today that David the psalmist is not doing well. And I know a lot of people who go to church and who are professing Christians don't do well. Not nearly as well as the Bible defines the way we should do. And a lot of people struggle. We will struggle in trials. There will be difficulties and temptations and and circumstances we walk through. But we shouldn't struggle all of our life. We shouldn't struggle all the time. There shouldn't be a dismal attitude in us and a dismal way and talk of, oh, no, what next? We shouldn't be like that. Now, there's a reason we are, and there's a reason those things happen. There's a reason that people are like that. So we want to try to find out why it is. Let's read what happened to one that it happened to and see if we can learn something from this. David, as you know from last time, he had been caught with his affair with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet confronted him and told him, said, you're the man, and then went through all of that in 2 Samuel 12. And then David writes this psalm. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. God has used men and their pen to say what he once said. But God gave us these words here, but they came from an experience that David had. And it's interesting that David's sorrow was very deep, very sincere, and very genuine. He said in verse 1, he wanted to blot out his transgression. In verse 2, he said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you might be right when you speak. In verse 5, he said, I was shapen in iniquity. I do this naturally. I should not, but I did. And it's all my fault. I'm not a victim. Nobody made me do this. I am guilty as charged. I deserve justice, but you have given mercy. Now, he didn't say it that way, but that's what happened. And David acknowledges sin. I don't know how long after Nathan spoke to David that he wrote this. I don't know how long a time after the meeting with Nathan that he sat down and, and as God directed, began to write Psalm 51. I don't know. But I know that his repentance, his relief from that didn't come right away. Like we think it does when we say, well, all right, I'm sorry. I messed up. Man, I'm sorry. And for us, that's the end of it. But for David, I don't know how long again, how long did this last, this grief, this sorrow over sin? I remember reading of Charles Finney's evangelistic campaigns. I'm not a Finney fan of his theology, but he was effective in evangelism. At one time in one of the great campaigns he had, the people were, you know, they heard his message. It penetrated their hearts. It was like fire and like a hammer, and they were located as sinners, and they began to feel the pain of their sin and the awfulness of judgment that's due them, and that was coming and that they were doomed to an eternity apart from God. It was their fault, and they knew that. And some of them began to weep and began to cry and sob, and Finney closed the meetings, sent them home. Somebody asked him once in the story that I just gave, uh, that type of story, he said, why would you send them home, man? They were ready. He said, I want them to agonize over their sin. Let them go home and live with it. Let them go home until they have got to have relief. I have got to have God's presence. This is killing me. Then when they come to the Lord, he said, they won't go back. 
because they have experienced how awful their sin was and what it does to you on the inside and how you're affected when you know that God is not there anymore. You can play the God thing if you want. You can play the church thing, but he's not there, and you know it. And while outwardly you appear to be okay, inwardly you're desolate, you're sorrowful, you're in pain, and you know you're not right with God. And so he says, oh, God, cleanse me. I acknowledge my sin and my transgression, my iniquities, all three of those words we looked at last time. Lord, everything you say here, I'm guilty of. He wrote in Psalm 102, he said, Thou, because of thine iniquities and thy wrath, he said, For thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. Now you stop and think about that. Would God either do that or allow that? Would God lift you up if you were down? Could he lift you up out of the miry clay and set your feet upon a rock? And he intended for your feet to stay on that rock and for you to fight all your battles and live all of your life from the victory of that rock. Would you agree to that? I do. Then why would a man ever be cast down? In other words, how does a man lose the favor of God? God didn't forsake him. He didn't throw him away. But there was a thing that God allowed to happen to him that he describes as being cast down. And if you're a Christian who has known any of the good times, the good moments, the stirrings of God in your life, if you've had some kind of a experience with God and you've known the pleasure of it and the joy of it, if you've known that kind of experience, oh man, and then you don't have that anymore, when you allow yourself to get loose with your life or with your mouth or with your directions or with whatever, and you begin to take liberties with God, and suddenly all of that pleasure and joy is gone, and church is just a dry thing anymore, there's no juice in your life, you're just sort of drifting along, trying to get it going again, and you're cast down. If you've ever known the up, Boy, the down is terrible. It's just awful. Because nothing works. You feel like you're just playing a game. You're talking about something that's not even there. It is, but it doesn't seem like it is. Let me tell you something. God, if you don't want to walk in his terms, if you don't want to live the way he wants you to, he can withdraw his presence from you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but it sometimes doesn't seem like that's true. It is true, but it doesn't seem like it because that nearness is gone. Something's lacking in your life. And it's all because of choices we make. You chose not to press in. You chose not to read, not to study, not to pray, not to try, not to forgive. You made that choice. All of those choices are sinful. Because God told you that's not the way you live. But, well, you know, you took it into your own hands. You did it your way, and you sinned. And when you sin, you pay the price. The wages of sin is death. And death is separation from God. And when you're walking in this world, again, having known something about God, and then it's gone, boy, it's terrible. Haven't we heard that your sin will find you out? In Numbers 32 and verse 23, your sin will find you out. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 59 and verse 2 that your sins and your iniquities separate between you and your God that he will not hear? So you can cry out and pray a beautiful prayer, but if sin is dominant in your life, it's never been dealt with in your life, you're separated from God. Even though sometimes you say, Lord, I am sorry, I have messed up really, really bad. In my experience, nothing like David's, but I have found that sometimes it, it's a lingering thing. It takes a while to get over it, but you will. David said this in verse 8. He said, Lord, give me gladness and joy. Let me hear that all over again. Make me to hear joy and gladness. And Lord, don't hide your face from me in verse 9. Blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Presence is a word is used for face. The word is translated face in Numbers 6. Remember the benediction at the end of Numbers 6? You know, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon. That's his presence. That is a blessing to live in this life with an awareness of a right relationship with God. To have a clean and clear conscience that there's no obstacle between you and God, at least not right now. Now, the day isn't over. But to know that you're free and you're clean with your relationship to God. It is almost a given that when you have that, you have joy in your life. And when you don't have joy, something is really wrong. Look at verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Restore means to bring it back. It means to to reestablish. Or as one Hebrew dictionary defines it, Lord, do it again. David knew what joy was. There's many places in the psalm, we'll look at one in probably in just a moment here in Psalms 21, where David had known joy. God had made this man to be victorious in all of his battles. There was nothing he wouldn't have done for him. He gave him this, like he said to Solomon, I gave you this, I gave you more than any man could ever, ever want. I gave you, I gave you, and and, and limitless giving, and look what you've done. Wasn't it enough that I gave you? It's like God saying to us, you're holding a book in which I honor. I watch over that book, those words to perform them. This is my word to you, God would say. What I have said in there, I said it to you. I mean it. I cannot lie. I cannot change my mind. And if I said I will, I will. I sent my word to accomplish my purpose and to do what I said in that book. And so don't ignore it. Don't listen to it half-heartedly as though it doesn't mean anything because it's all you got. It's all we have. Your life should be determined by the content of that book. That's God's word to you. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word from God. He said in Deuteronomy 32, this word is your life. This is what it's all about. This is what you can depend on God to do. When you have that, when you have a faith that can embrace that, you may not have experienced all of that yet, but you know it's real. And yes, yes, praise God. There's a promise in here for every need of my life, every circumstances, every problem. There's a promise And I know if I get before the Lord and I lay that promise before him, Lord, to bring it back to him. He said it won't return void. And when I bring that promise back to him and I put him in remembrance. And I begin to think and pray and I know God will do that. Now, if you know he'll do that. You think of it for a minute. If you know he's going to do for you what he said, even though it hadn't been done yet. You cannot help but have joy. There is joy and peace in believing, it says in Romans. The fact that God has given me something to embrace his word, that's called faith. And I can be sure and confident and persuaded and certain that what God has promised, not what I've seen done, but what he has promised to do, that he will do, You couldn't help but rejoice. And when God told David, he said, I'll be with you and I'll give you the victory. Yes, go and you'll win. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. What what do you want, David? What do you want? Until a man could sit in his castle and say, you know, there's nothing more in life that I could want. God described David's life when he ended. He said he was full of days. Full of days. He didn't die miserable. He didn't die wretched. He just died cold, that's all. He could get no heat. But anyway, that's the way it ought to be. But what we see here in Psalm 51, one of the major requests 
due to the failings of his sinfulness, he said, Lord, I've lost, I've lost the joy of your salvation. Your salvation is your provision for my life. Everything I'll ever need that you've already provided is a part of salvation. You know, the salvation of our souls is, is a process. The, the new birth is instant. The salvation, you know, working after salvation or receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It's a life I live. And through that life, every need is supplied. There are provisions and promises along the way. Lord, you will deliver me. You will protect me. You will heal me. You will set me free, give me a sound mind, give me good direction, make me wise and understand. All of this is part of salvation. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn any of this stuff. It's given to you. It's given to those who seek, given to those who search, and so forth. David said, Lord, your salvation and the assurance that you've given me about all it, I don't have that anymore. I don't have any joy. My joy... Oh, God, restore unto me that. Because what do any of us in this room have? What quality of life does anybody have without joy? When you can't laugh, you can't smile, you can't agree to the good things that happen to other people and you're glad about that. When you can't say, he has made me glad, and there seems to be sorrow or despair and gloom and uncertainty and so much negative outlook in your life. You don't have any joy. There's something wrong in the connection between you and God because one of the outstanding features, outstanding features of being saved is joy because joy is a coming forth of Christ in you, the fruit of the Spirit. The first one is what? Love. What's the second one? Joy. The third was peace. Those are things that make the Christian life the kind of life you want to live, not you have to live, but you want to live this because if you get a little bit of this, you want more of it. I don't care how destitute and sorrowful and sad the world or the shape the world is in or what the latest news or the latest forecast, it doesn't matter. When you know in whom you have believed and you're persuaded that he's able and that he will do it for you, even though he hadn't done it yet, but he will, you can't help but joy. When you don't have that, you walk around with an uncertainty about you. You talk about your uncertainties. You discuss it. You're not sure. There's an unsettled, uncertain forecast in your life. Something's wrong. It was with David. He never had to pray, restore to me the salvation of my souls until he fell into sin. Oh, yeah, he fell into sin, had him a moment with a pretty woman, let's say. Wow. And now look at it. She wasn't worth it. The moment wasn't worth it. Now he can't even smile anymore. Now his heart is full of guilt, and he's, he's caused the man to die, and he's taken the man's wife. He's done everything. He's lied to boot. Everything about him is wrong, and he's destroyed, it seems, all of his relationship with God. Now, this joyful king who danced before the Lord and danced with all of his might. Remember that song, King David danced before the Lord. He danced with all his might. His heart was filled with holy joy. His spirit was so right. Michael threw the window, looked to criticize his start. She didn't know that David had a dancing heart. Oh, the whole, remember that? <laughs> of course you don't. There's nine verses to that song. I, I've carried those verses the last three years to the seminar, thinking that maybe a spirit of worship would come forth, and we'll sing that. Because the last time I remember going through that, we were a long, long time ago. And I can remember how exuberant we got. Oh, woo! It's not going to happen this morning because I didn't bring them, the verses. <laughs> oh, but David didn't have it anymore. How many times have you noticed Christians? I have. I've been thinking one in the message. Who used to be so gleeful. And one day I noticed he didn't smile anymore. Next thing I know, he wasn't very friendly anymore. Next thing I know, he divorced his wife. I don't know what ever happened to him. What in the world happened? It was sin. 
sin. Your desire for something that's off limits. Your desire to do, go, wear, be, have, watch when it's off limits and your conscience says no, but you do it anyway. You've been robbed by your consent. You gave in to it. Life has lost its pop. David had lost his. The king had fallen. He had lost. Turn to Isaiah 59. And we'll get started from where we were last time. Isaiah 59 and verse 8. Now I'm butting in on a story which is not part of the message, so let's just do this this way. See, he said, as I told you a while ago, verse 2, your iniquities. What does he say in verse 2? Your iniquities do. Your self-serving ways, what do they do? What happens when you sin? You separate it. In separation, what takes place? When there is a separation from God due to sin, what then happens? He said, God has hid his face from you, and he will not hear. Now, both of those, if you're a Christian delighting or have delighted and want to delight and are seeking a delightful relationship to God, and you don't have that, uh, you won't last long. You get weary quick. But he said, your sins have hid his face from you. His face doesn't shine upon you. He's turned his ear from you. Your cry is not heard. That's not fair. Oh, it's quite fair. Quite fair. He didn't sin. You sinned. He didn't mess up. You messed up. He told you what not to do. You did it anyway. So it's a just sentence. Fair. Justice. Now, speaking to that type of thing and the way that people were and the way they were acting, he comes down to verse 8. He says, the way of peace they know not. And there is no justice or no fairness in their goings. And they have made them crooked paths wherever they go therein. They shall not know peace. Just like this world you're living in right now. It's wandering around and looking for something. It's drugging itself. It's having affairs. It's unlimited pleasure. Expressions or whatever. And finding nothing but more darkness, more gloom, and more despair. Angry. This is an angry age. Everybody wants to hurt everybody, editorially speaking. These people are just all the time. Verse 9, he said, there is no judgment from us. Neither does justice overtake. We're not fair. We're not treating people right. We're not even being honest about it. We wait for the light, but hold obscurity for brightness But alas, we walk in darkness. Notice these words. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we have no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. We look for salvation, but it's far off from us. Why? Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, that's that conversation that we have that's about stuff that's off limits. We do it anyway. Look at speaking, oppression, and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, words of falsehood. This is why they lose their joy. Verse 15, say, yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Everybody says, oh, you think you're better than everybody. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice, nothing was fair. Do you suppose that when you grope like a blind man through life trying to find your way, when you moan like doves or growl like bear, that you're happy? Are you living a good life? It's the good life. What, groping like that, like a blind man, groaning, growling? We have too much of that. I expect the world to be like this because there is no light for the world. They don't want any light. They've turned away from it. He said they did. 
There's not much you can do for them. But when in the church and God's people are acting like that, what quality of life do you have? Gloom? Cheerless? When we get around you, we get to talking to you or something, we hear about negative things. You know, this is not right, that's not right. I don't know why. Hardly ever any talk of the solutions that God has provided. Of that word that you've got in your lap, that doesn't even come in as the solution. I don't know why. I can't and me and I can't and I don't know why me and I don't know. I just blah, 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 blah. And your kids listen to it over the table while you're eating, if you ever eat together. Your kids listen to you talk. They act like that themselves. They go to school. The other kids talk like that. It's just a growing cancer. It's just, ugh. Where's the joy? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Because when I know what promise God has made, when I know what to do and how to act and what to say in a certain situation, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to cave into this. Out of the faith that embraces his promise comes joy. And that's where I'm strong. You can cut my head off. You can't cut my smile off. You can cut my lips. I guess you can cut my nose and cheeks and all that. But you can't cut the joy of my heart out. History tells us about the martyrs who went to the cross with a smile on their face. They were about to die a horrible, painful death, smiling. There are those that if you don't recant, we're going to kill you. Mad people say that. Angry people say that. People that have no revelation of Jesus Christ talk like that. We're going to kill you. Bang. Heaven, angels, eternal life. There's something about joy that supersedes your needs for everything else in this world. You could gain the whole world, have all the toys that anybody could ever want, have gone to all the exotic places, even the places those credit card companies show you about, the, you know, the Crystal Beach and the pretty this and that. You could even go there and be a miserable wretch because you've got an empty heart. Or if there's ever been anything in that heart and you've denied it, set it aside, didn't take it serious, the consequences of that kind of a decision is gloom and doom and growling and sadness and being cranky. Uh-oh. Don't elbow him. Don't elbow him. <laughs> Moody, don't elbow her either. This is our testimony to a lot of people and to each other in our families. We're cranky, moody, kind of angry a lot, just don't seem to have much good to look forward to and nothing's going right and I, I don't have it. <sighs> Time out, brother, sister, where's your joy? Well, you don't know what it's like. I know what your Bible says. Faith doesn't look at circumstances. Faith looks at promises. The best thing you do at a circumstance that comes up and growls at you, smile back. If you believe, if you're not believing, it wasn't funny, was it? But if you're believing, it makes sense. If God is in charge, take hell. If God made my body, and he did, and he knows everything about it, Psalm 139 knows every detail about my body, then as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to take no thought for this thing. I'm going to cast it over on him. Well, if you take no thought for a while, you bathe it because I believe I should. I don't have faith to not bathe myself. I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to let God take care of it. Well, what if this or that happens? Well, if, you know, God's in charge of that. And one day somebody says, what is the reason of the hope that is within you? Shouldn't we have that testimony of reason of hope? A person that has hope isn't noted for his hope because he walks around like this. 
How are you doing? Well, as good as I can under the circumstances. Are you writing a book? Excuse me. Or somebody says, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. I heard that this, yeah, well, you know, God can put all that back together. Amen. If they, why aren't you breaking down and tearing and falling apart, man? Because I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to, to do. I meant to do what he said. So I've committed myself to him and all my tomorrows to him because he's able to take care of all of that. In the meantime, because I believe that, I turn my frown upside down and I smile. See, listen, remember this. When you're living a life without solutions, you have no joy. You get by from day to day, you go to a party, you have fun, you drink a little bit, maybe, <laughs> and you hey, I laugh, but that's not joy. Joy is entirely spiritual in nature. A Christian can be happy, and we should be happy. But happiness really is determined by what happens. You're happy if this happens, or if that happens, or if this comes to pass. It's only for a moment. Happiness comes and goes, but joy is a spiritual fruit. It's Christ in you. That's his nature. He is the author of joy. And when joy comes out, it's Christ coming out. The joy of the Lord. He's the one that you're living for. And when something gets in your way and you find yourself getting sideways with God, what are we going to do now? I don't know what we're, I don't know. I don't, why, why would God let this happen? I don't know. David said, Lord, it's all because of my sin. I've missed it. You could be tested for some things. You're not all grievous moments in life are due to some sin in your life. Jesus had a lot of them. He was tempted in all points like we are, and I'm sure he didn't enjoy a lot of things he went through. I mean, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he did that because of the joy that was set before him. Something motivated him that superseded the shame of the cross and the power of pain. He overcame it and told us that what he did, we can do. But there's something there. There's something there about having a solution, taking time to study Make some notes. Write in your Bible if you have to. Put somewhere that this is a promise for, a promise for, 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 for. These are God's provisions for your life in an unhappy world. Look at what God has promised you here. Didn't he say in Isaiah 55 that his word would go forth out of his mouth and would do two things, prosper thing he says to do and accomplish his purpose? Didn't he say that? You've got that in your lap. It's the will of your Father for you. If you've got that and you believe it, it entirely takes this. This is a must. If you believe that, because he that cometh to God must, must believe. When you come to God and you believe what he said, and that registers in your heart, becomes something that's embracing your conscience that God will do this. God will take care of this. He will. He will provide. This is a great need of mine, but, but he will provide it. In this case, it's a need, but he'll also provide the desire of your heart. He will do it. When you can embrace that, you can't help but smile. And again, somebody said, what are you smiling about? I know in whom I have believed. Or, my name is written in heaven. Didn't Jesus say rejoice because of that? Didn't he? He said rejoice not that demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Is that something worth rejoicing? Are your names written in heaven? Then why, and I'm not saying anybody is, this is a message, okay. Why then would you not be joyful every day? Whenever gloom comes and doom comes, it's not a day he doesn't come. When he knocks on your door, 
Put a smile on your face and go meet him. You can't prevent this. Jesus said you're going to be tested. So put a smile on your face and meet life with a smile. With a smile that is backed by faith. So you have your back up. Faith, this is what makes it work. Your mind can embrace many promises, and you can confess those promises all you want to. They only work when you believe them. When in your heart you're assured and convinced and settled and certain and persuaded that God will do all of these things. What is it about you that you seem to always be up and happy or you always seem to have this under control? What is it about you? I said, well, I'll tell you what, you may not understand it, and it's a longer story than what I'm about to say, but I have learned how to cast all my concerns, all my worries, even all my frustrations over on the Lord. And sometimes it doesn't look like it. It continues to be a struggle throughout the day, but the more I quote and give back to God his word and, and hold fast to it, the more the power of that temptation dissipates. It, it begins to subside. I sing because I go to church. I have a baptismal certificate for my name is spelled correctly. And I know he watches me. No, sir, my, my joy is based more than that. David said, O God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Look at this. Look at, listen to your testimony. All of you. All of you that are joyful right now, listen to this testimony. In trials, count it all what? Count it all joy. He didn't say enjoy it. If you enjoy trials, you need some deliverance. Remember, Jesus despised the shame. There wasn't any enjoyment about what he went through. But he went through it. But he says, count it all joy when you encounter all these confrontations with the devil who's trying to take away what God has given you. Count it joy. Remember what you've been taught. Hold on to that word. It'll stabilize you through life. Hold on to it and look at the devil and say, I'm counting on God. Because your faith, that's what's being tested. Count it all joy. Or he said in 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, let me turn to it. In 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through how? Faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein, in all of that, especially that salvation, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice, though even though now for a season, if necessary, you're in heaviness through many kinds of trials and temptations. That the trial of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though your gold is tested by fire, that your faith might be found at the coming of Jesus under praise and honor and glory. God is doing a deep work in your life. The manifestation of the victory for you is your joy. Because joy says, I'm counting on God. I am counting on the Lord to fulfill for me what he has said. Whom having not seen, he went on to say, you love. And though now you see him not yet believing, you do what? You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I suggest to you that this is typical of the way Christians live. That these verses here typify the testimony that all of us should have. Would you agree or not? No matter what comes in 2015, something greater that has already come is God's word, and faith that he gives you is the assurance of that word. How could we lose? Now, let me tell you something. If you don't have that, I will assume, I will assume either your faith is flawed 
or there's sin in your life. Let me tell you something. This is for another message, and I'm just going to hint at it. There's a lot of sin that's not being dealt with, especially uncleanness. It's not being dealt with in families. And that has opened a door to a lot of gloom and doom. I know it has. It's sin. But it's not treated as sin because people don't accept it as sin. Another message, another day. Where were we? Let's see. We were talking about James chapter 1. Another part of our testimony is not in our trials that we rejoice, that typifies us, but also if there's a great loss in our life, that we are being persecuted and some things are taken from us. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 34, he said, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods when they came after you. They associated you with this group over here that's being persecuted. They said, you're just like them. And we got that same problem in our town. So they begin to harass you and take your goods, steal from you. He said, they accepted that joyfully. Oh, today I'd have my phone would melt. The little dumb thing should melt. But anyway, I don't know how many people after 30 years can handle adversity like that. And yet the Bible says, you joyfully accepted that. Remember the book Habakkuk? Towards the end of the Old Testament, back there in the back, he said, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit of the vines, the yield of the olives should fail and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, we're talking about loss here. Verse 18 says, yet, yet. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice and joy, I will rejoice in the Lord and joy in the God of my salvation. They're Hebrew words. You've got a dictionary or a concordance. You can look them up and you go home. One word means to spin around like a top. Well, they would lock you up if you did that. You just had some kind of disaster happen and all your money's gone or your crop or whatever, the bottom has fallen out of the financial market in your life. And, and the writer Habakkuk said, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. You see, if you don't have that, all you can do is join the sadness of this world. You like them. No difference. Sorrow and despair and grief and moaning, and mourning, and growling, and grumbling. And then you start gritting your teeth, and you start getting a little bit upset, and then it's not fair. Now you're a victim. All because a lack of believing in what God said, the absence of joy has allowed something called sin to just begin to roll in your life. Never forget this, folks. Every morning when you get up, Sin lies at your door. He's waiting for you. It's what Genesis 4, 7 says. Sin lieth at this door, and its desire is for you. If you do well, you'll be all right. If you do not well, if you're not doing well, sin lies at the door. You know why people can't handle that? Because they don't want to think that that's true with them. Let's say somebody in here is really not doing well at all spiritually. Let's say you're not doing well spiritually because of, of some particular point, some particular thing or two. And so this particular morning, I preach on that particular thing or two. I mean, and it just like a sword just drilled, goes right into your heart. And then you get mad. You get upset. Well, you didn't have to say that. Well, that's not true. Or somebody got sick and went to the hospital. It was because of like, something like David did here. He had an affair. We didn't know it. God knew it. And so we said something about, you know, if blah, 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 this, probably because you had an affair. Oh, they get me. You know what? That person cannot repent. Because they are offended at the very truth like a sword that identified their sin and located them. And they get mad about it. And the poor preacher, if he's sorry as, as I would like to describe him, he's afraid that you'll leave if he says that, and so he won't say that, and he leaves you in your sin, and God judges you the rest of your life. 
Because the preacher spared himself of you leaving, but boy, it cost you everything. It'll cost him an end. You cannot tolerate, nobody in this room, you cannot tolerate the activity of any kind of sin in your life and expect to do well. And if the Spirit of God is really moving, if there is truly an anointing on this place, God will deal with you. You will not go home without knowing you are guilty. And read David in Psalm 51. Look what guilt does. No joy, no gladness. You grumble, you mourn, you moan. Like the world, you're mad. You want what somebody else has, but you don't want to work. Because God said to work, don't tell me I have to work. That ain't fair. Oh, God, you're living in a world. The Bible says that darkness is coming. It's getting darker. People can't see as well as they used to see along the way. The, a time of darkness is coming. And the only hope for us, and we're the only light in the world. You know that. The only light. You know what your light is, don't you? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. You're the only one that's got any light. Nobody else can see from your light, just like those virgins and, that Jeff was talking about the other night. You know, They couldn't give us some of your all. This is a spiritual matter. You can't live in what I see. You got to see for yourself. And if oil is what burned and made the light, then you got to get your own. You got to find it for yourself. It's in the Word. And when you don't want to do that and you just kind of sour, you not only cannot repent in that state, or if you did say, Well, I'm sorry, it won't work. You can say all the right stuff you want to. If your heart's wrong, it, you are not forgiven. We're not the boss of how we live. God is the boss of how we live. And what he gave us here, and what he has shown us, is the way we should live. Take persecution. Jesus said, when men persecute you, cast out your name as evil. He said, rejoice. He said, rejoice. Remember in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were brought before the court and they said, quit preaching in this name. And after they preached them, they beat them. Remember that? Stop preaching in this name. You're bringing reproach on all of us. Stop talking about this Jesus. Now beat them. Give them a lesson here. Whop them real good. And they all got beat and they went back rejoicing that they were worthy of such persecution. They were being identified with the Lord experiencing what was due him, and they were taking his place because it was them they were getting it, you know, because of the indwelling Christ. They said, praise the Lord. Why, today it's lawsuit city. I have my rights because angry people protest. Angry people have road rage. Angry people fuss at the poor lady at the drive-thru at the slow food restaurant, you know, and they catch all this flack. And yet sometimes you have to sit there and wait and they can't count your money. (laughs) I'm sorry, Lord. They have a difficult time doing their job. And you can see the stress coming on some of them. And sometimes you just say, it's all right. Be all right. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing, as one man said, better than I deserve, and I believe that. Well, I hear that uh, a lot of this, or I heard that happen. This, yeah, that stuff does happen, and it, yeah, it, it happened. But God will take care of it. Now, some of these news shows a disaster that happened, and the people are being interviewed, and they're just, they're done. I mean, it's like they're being cooked. Stick a fork in them. They're done. That one is, and these people probably been to church. I don't know what they ever heard. Who knows what they've heard? One of the greatest joys in the world has been left out of their life. It's portraying Christ as somebody who can be trusted and relied on in any circumstance, in every circumstance, the rest of your life. That's been left out. They've been entertained, told stories, given little goody things to do in a little 20-minute sermonette. Joy is an echo of God's presence in your life.
It's what God would do in you. When God is at work in you, knowing the end from the beginning, giving assurance, Jesus is my... He cannot help but put a smile on your face and begin to rejoice. Because when you have joy, faith is winning the battles. You're winning. You're about to succeed and become the conqueror that you ought to be. Turn to Hebrews 12. I told you last time that this time when we came together, I was going to talk about what was the joy that was set before Jesus. Because Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, my joy, John 15, 11, he said, my joy I give to you. And he's about to go to the garden for the most horrible. He's about to go through the very thing he said he endured. And he said, my joy I give to you that your joy may be full. Remember that? These things I speak unto you, John 16, that your joy may be full. The word I'm giving you is so you can believe it and have joy. First John 1, 4, he said the same thing. He said, my joy I give to you through these words, or these things are spoken so that you can have joy. Well, what was his joy? It says here in Hebrews 12, Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, then, there was something there before him to be achieved, and it's probably several things. I came to do my Father's will. Jesus said, I come to set the captives free, for they were bound. They can't go to heaven if they're bound. They've got to be released. So Jesus came as a great redeemer, savior, and he came to accomplish that so that God, in his righteousness, could set aside all of our sin and forgive us of our sins because of our faith in Jesus. Now, that had to happen before we could be saved. Because all men are under sin. There's only one Savior came one time to save the lost. All have sinned. All have sinned. Jesus came to save sinners. What he said was, who for the joy that was set before him was so motivated by that joy that there was nothing that he would not endure, overcome, Deal with, submit to, yield to, uh, fight. For whatever that joy was, was worth all he had. The very best that he could give and the most he could do, he would do it just so that whatever that joy was could be fulfilled. May I suggest to you that you were the object of his joy. You and restoration back with the heavenly father, like he said at the end of verse 2 there. You and me. Can you imagine? Sometimes wild, sometimes unrestrained, sometimes kind, nice, educated sinners like we were. Jesus came on the behalf of the father as God's lamb. God's sacrifice for sins. A lamb without spot, blemish, or any such thing. He didn't come as a lion to, to judge. He just came as a lamb, surrendered himself to the will of his heavenly father, and died the death that God gave him to die. A death accepted by the Lord. God raised him from the dead that forever sealed, ended all questions about it. Yes, he is. He was what he said he was. He is now where he said he was going to go, and what he has done has been done. And yes, if you will believe what he said, you will receive what he offered. <laughs> How could I not rejoice? How could any of us not rejoice over that? That's what Jesus did for us. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it said that he ended the reign of sin, the right and the power of sin over you. He said, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of on, 
on high. Jesus did that. And then he sat down. That's the second time we've read that. And he sat down where he started. When he came to this earth, he came to do something. When he went back to heaven, before he left, he said, it is what? It is finished. It is done. He told him in John 16, 33, before John 17 in the garden, before the garden and the end came. He said, be of good cheer. He said, I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer. He's about to die. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Which means, you follow me and you will too. You'll experience the same sufferings that I did. You'll have the same harassments I did. But the very way I overcame, you will too. I'll give you what I have. And you'll make it as I will. You'll trust me as I trust my father. And you'll be saved. I'm the only one in this room that loves that. I'm the only one this morning in the whole room full of people here, Lord. I like it more than all of them put together. How about that? I said, well, you can speak for yourself, big boy, but I believe it just as much as you do. Amen. I'm glad you do. He has made me glad. Do we still sing that? He has made me glad. And with, armed with that kind of knowledge, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will. I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Something in my heart like a stream running free makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and what he's done for me, something in my heart like a stream running free. And I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. You know, I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Y'all are staring at me like, are you going to finish the song or not? <laughs> no. I'm enjoying the moment before we quit. I know my time is up, but I'm making my own time now, so I don't mind. I enjoy what I sense. I enjoy the moment because what I've said to you this morning is true. It is the truth. The consequences of believing this, the consequence is twofold. You will please the Lord and you will rejoice. You'll be no more of this hands hanging down. When the true awareness of salvation comes like it should, nobody had to prompt you to praise the Lord. You know, I wonder how many of you have ever, uh, when it's a little harder as you get older, but I wonder how many of you have ever just kind of found yourself wanting to, you know, I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Now, if I do that, I'll start sweating. I'll come up here preaching like that, and they'll think I'm Pentecostal. But how many people in here, after all these years, have never danced before the Lord? How many of you have never shouted unto the Lord? What is the restraining influence in God's glad-hearted saints? What has suppressed us? What's holding us down? Is it sin? Is there some kind of a sin in our families? Is there something that has gotten in? And like David, you know, I, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. And Lord, I don't have any joy. Is that true? Is that true with you? Oh, Lord. What was it? I'm going to pick it up here the next time. What was it that was set before? What things motivated Jesus to live the way he did, to accomplish what he did, to obtain that joy himself? What was it? We'll keep looking at there's several things. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I ask you to look upon us this morning in this room. This is our first meeting of this year, Lord. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would loose us and set us free. Enable us to freely worship 
and praise and extol you and bless you and thank you and be glad-hearted about you. Just like you said, Lord, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Ours are. Lord, help us rejoice. Open our eyes to see something maybe we're not seeing. Send the prophet to us. Send the word to us. Expose us, any of us and all of us. Expose us all, Lord. Clean us out. But Lord God, restore unto us here in this church the joy of your salvation, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.